0: So here we are at episode 50. In some ways, it feels like episode 104 because before I started Shaping Fire, I recorded 54 weekly episodes for my friends over at Gontrepreneur.com. But this episode is number 50 of Shaping Fire. The Shaping Fire show is in its third year, and some folks ask me why there are only 50 episodes, which works out to about two or so a month. The long and the short of it is that to make a quality show, I can't just spit them out. For most of my guests, I need to read their research or their book or bone up on some aspect of cannabis just so I can ask the questions that you most want to hear answered. If I just asked generic questions, the show wouldn't be particularly interesting. And the number one piece of feedback that I get from folks is that they love my lines of questioning. So I make sure I take my time when preparing a show. Also, as an interesting side note, um, I went to college on a full debate scholarship. So that's probably where the question and answer skills come from. Also, not only do I like to take some time building a show, but I'm out in the field constantly learning more and meeting new experts to bring them to you on the show. I'm down in California a few times a year hearing what farmers are saying and trying to get introductions to hard people to reach, like Caleb Inspecta, who was recently on the show. That interview took almost a year to bring together, but it was hella worth it. I also run my own test garden and um, spend the bulk of my time working with cannabis patients and caregivers, teaching them how to use cannabis medicine and set up patient grows. It doesn't pay anything, but it's the most important part of all this to me. And while the podcast can now support my basic needs through advertising, I am still doing some brand strategy and business consulting for select clients so I can afford the occasional vacation, you know? I think because I am involved in so many aspects of cannabis and am not cloistered at home in the studio, it, that it offers you a perspective that you won't find anywhere else. But that also means this will probably never be a weekly show, but we'll see. And while I can finally live off the commercials on the show, you'll notice that I still don't have any bottled salt nutrient companies as advertisers. While most of the industry is propped up by helping sell salts, there's no way I would take that kind of money while being such a proponent of regenerative agriculture, polyculture, and organic cannabis farming techniques. I'm doing my best to walk my talk. Similarly, you may have realized that I'm doing fewer shows on cannabis business now and more about cannabis health and technique. Sure, there are still shows about the industry because I'm still interested in that and I'm still very much a part of that, but you aren't going to find me doing a show about like track and trace software. The content I am producing now is much more for hardcore cannabis enthusiasts than it is necessarily for business owners, though I love business owners too. It's just that I'm more interested in the plant and the medicine than I am about spreadsheets and regulatory changes. So as you'd expect, Shaping Fire evolves like it would over three years of the show. Thanks for listening to the show and watching the videos on the YouTube channel. Thanks for sending your kind messages and following on Instagram. And thanks for recommending me to your friends and to good-hearted cannabis businesses that you think might be good advertisers. Like our tagline says, we try and produce meaningful cannabis content worth your valuable time to check out. So thank you for being an important part of the Shaping Fire family. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. This month, we're giving away prize packs of the endomycorrhizal inoculant from Dynamike. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. Today, my guest is veterinarian Dr. Gary Richter. I had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Richter speak at Emerald Cup a while back and have been excited to have him on the show ever since. Gary is a holistic veterinarian and scientist with a practice in Oakland, California. While Gary cannot legally use cannabis in his practice, being in California means that he had to research cannabinopathic medicine anyway, just to answer the questions of pet owners. He has become a national expert and is a sought-after speaker, and he's also a really nice guy. Today, we're going to talk about, in detail, the use of cannabis with pets and livestock. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm so glad you could join us. So let's start at the very basic, because you know we talk about cannabis medicine on the show all the time. And one of the key aspects of cannabis medicine, of course, is that it um, interacts with the human endocannabinoid system. And often when we talk about cannabis and pets people are often surprised that oh an animal has an endocannabinoid system too and i generally explain to them that that you know all mammals do uh, to varying degrees and and people are surprised about that when you talk to people about the endocannabinoid system and their pet kind of explaining to them how it works uh, for the pet instead of the human how do you go ahead and explain that to folks
1: yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it, you know, explaining the endocannabinoid system can get uh, can get tricky even when you're when you're trying to explain it to medical professionals because, you know remember, uh, very, very few medical professionals, be they physicians or veterinarians, learned anything about the endocannabinoid system in medical school either. Um, but but you know, the way I approach it is 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 you know, the endocannabinoid system, it is a system of neurotransmitters that are present throughout the body, both in the central nervous system as well as in the rest of the body. And, and, and while we could talk for days about all of the various, uh, all of the various actions and, and physiologic responses that are caused by the endocannabinoid system, the overarching message is that the endocannabinoid system is designed to promote what is called homeostasis which means balance within the body. So whether, you know, whether there's some sort of physiologic stress, an illness, an injury, uh, emotional stress, the endocannabinoid system can help balance all of that out and keep the body on an even keel.
0: That's fantastic, and and I think it's interesting too. The idea that it, that that the endocannabinoid system is constantly bringing any system that is running hot or running cold back to the center, and I think that's interesting because people say, "How can cannabis potentially help so many different things?" And I tell folks it only really helps one thing. It helps your endocannabinoid system. It's just that ha- that happens to have its fingers in everything. Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's 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 almost like. Um... It's almost like when people talk about stem cell therapy and, and, and stem cell therapy being able to treat this incredibly wide range of medical conditions, it's because, it's because stem cells are really at the root of, 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 of what cells can be in the body, and therefore they can address so many different body systems, and, and while endocannabinoids are clearly not stem cells, it is similar in the sense that the endocannabinoid system touches almost every system within the body and therefore there is the potential uh, to utilize the endocannabinoid system and, and phytocannabinoids to, to positively affect those systems.
0: Um, I think that in many cases, pet owners are pretty darn sophisticated and with access to the internet, a lot of folks are doing uh, their research before they even go to the doctor's office. I was curious, you know, when people come to your office and, and I know that you don't recommend cannabis in your practice because of the laws in California, but people constantly come to you asking about it, which kind of forces the question, you know, uh, to, to, to be answered. And do you find that people generally already know that their, their pet has got an endocannabinoid system or is, is that very advanced for just about everybody you talk to coming in?
1: You know what? I think a lot of people that come in, while they may have seen the term endocannabinoid system somewhere, either on the internet or, or wherever, um, they don't really have a firm grasp on exactly what that means or how it applies. Um, but what they do know is that there is the potential for cannabis as medicine to help their pet. And while many of them may not be concerned with the, with the specifics and the science of the why, uh, they certainly are concerned
0: with what can I do to help my animal. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes people will come to me and they will be talking about pets and they'll say, you know, I understand there's this thing called endocannabinoid deficiency and, you know, they, have often read Dr. Ethan Russo's papers about endocannabinoid deficiency in humans. Sure. And they're all like, you know, how do I tell if my, my animal has got endocannabinoid deficiency? And, and I usually tell them, you know what, there's not even tests for that in humans. What do you tell them?
1: Well, I, 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 that's that's pretty much the, the long and the short of it. I mean, even even for people, I mean, uh, you know, Ethan Russo's paper on, on endocannabinoid uh, system deficiencies, which is a fantastic paper, um, you know, a lot of it is speculative. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, because we're really we're really at the very very early stages of of understanding the, the more subtle nuances of, of of how the endocannabinoid system works. And there's certainly no diagnostic testing on the veterinary side
0: to be able to measure endocannabinoid tone, if you will. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that actually kind of feeds into kind of a general theme today that we're probably going to run into a bunch of times, which is these studies haven't been done yet. And so a lot of the insight that you're going to be offering um, is is. Based on kind of a combination of anecdotal evidence, your intuition, uh, you know, stories that you've heard come back to you and. And, you know, you're your very experienced hunches. And, uh, and I know that, you know, you, you, you've said that you'll point those out when they're more hunches than anything. But I think it's important for people to realize real clearly up front that these studies generally have not been done. But people are asking so many of these questions that we decided to go ahead and do an episode about it. Kind of like the, 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 the state of the art, like, you know, the, the best we know so far.
1: Yeah, you know, and, and that's true. And and but one other thing to to mention is there's certainly a lot more clinical data out there uh, regarding cannabis as it as it affects humans from a medical perspective. And while clearly a person is not a dog nor 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 a cat, um, you know they are all complex mammals and they all have an endocannabinoid system. So while we may not be able to necessarily you know draw direct correlations from one to the next, there's enough similarities here to where if we have reasonable scientific data on the human side, there is an expectation that we would see similar effects on the veterinary side.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's a really good clarification. There are there are a lot of uh, very reasonable similarities and jumps that we can make, and we'll probably be doing some of that today. So all right, so now that people generally have an idea of, of, of what we 're trying to interact with in the animals that we 're going to be talking about today um, i have uh, I have taken the kinds of animals and topics that that people ask me about most often, and let 's go through them uh, over the next you know, hour or so and, and talk um, about each so that whoever's listening their their particular animal with that particular issue will hopefully come up and by far, most everybody is talking to me about their cats and dogs. And I'm figuring that's probably the same for you. And the number one question I get is my domestic pet is getting old and their joints or arthritis or they're just not, they don't have the the same get up and go because it hurts for them to get up and go. And oh. people are asking me, all right, so they often come to me for the CBD and and then we often talk about We talk about THC instead for the anti-inflammatory. So when people are talking to you about um, simple joint pain for a house pet, what kind of guidance do you give them, or what kind of perspective do you set them up with?
1: Well, um, you know, as it pertains to cannabis, that that happens to be one of the areas where we do have a little bit of scientific data on the on the veterinary side. Uh, There was a study that was published last year out of Cornell that looked at using CBD to treat arthritis pain in dogs. And what they found was is that is that CBD was, in fact, effective at controlling arthritis pain in dogs. So um, that is, as I say, it's one of the few areas where we actually have some real data. Um, You know, perhaps the 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 bigger question or, or at least the other question is, is okay, well, if CBD is effective, what about THC? What about other cannabinoids? Um, and that is something that we really don't know definitively yet. Although again, going back to the human literature, we do know that THC or a combination of THC and CBD can be very, very beneficial to treat people with pain. Um, and, and as such, it's, it's probably reasonable to assume that similar things could be, uh, could be experienced, uh, by dogs and cats. Now the, the, so the, the trick to all of this, of course, is 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 what product and what dose. And that's, you know, that's where that that's where the you know, the rubber hits the road, so to speak, as as it pertains to, to sort of veterinary medicine or human medicine and and the use of cannabis. Um, so that's something that, uh, you know, as I'm sure you and your and your listeners know, uh, really plays a huge bearing on the effect of any. Any kind of cannabis preparation you know the varying uh, either amounts or ratios of cannabinoids terpenes what have you and that's 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 really where we need to be looking and where we need to be focusing
0: yeah you know I, I, I often which wish that I could speak to these dogs and cats that people come to me and they say oh we've got our dog and we uh, we gave it just a little bit of THC based tincture because it had joint pain and we were hoping for the inflammation to go down enough that the dog can you know heck sometimes just go outside to 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 defecate you know and and so people will give their animal just a little bit of of thc you know maybe maybe a milligram maybe a milligram and a half a very very small amount and then (laughs) and then the dog will you know you know, you know, get up and kind of lumber around and seem like it's in good spirits and step out. And I'm always curious to know whether or not is this the dog experiencing muscle relaxation and less tension of the muscles and less inflammation somehow in the moment? Or is it just that the dog somehow is experiencing, um, a pleasant cannabis experience like so many of us have, which kind of changed their mood and caused them to get up. Because we try to anthropomorphize their actions. And, and it's so important what the motivation of the actions are when we're talking about dosing humans. And the doses are so much more uh, sensitive and, and, and lower for an animal. It, it, it makes it very challenging to come up since there's no studies yet.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it is very challenging, but um, you know, one thing that we do know uh, with dogs in particular is that dogs actually have a greater number and a greater concentration of CB1 receptors in their brainstem than do people. Mm. Um, and as such, they are much more sensitive to the potential toxic effects of THC than would be a human um, on a sort of on a per weight basis. So, um, what that means is, is that, is that we do have to be very, very cautious with the amount of THC a dog gets. Now you mentioned like a half a milligram or one milligram of THC. Now it, it kind of depends on the size of the dog. Um, you know, for, for, so for example, for a medium to a large size dog, probably a milligram of THC is not going to have any any outward effects in a negative sense, like the dog's not gonna be high, the dog's not gonna be experiencing THC toxicity. Um, But that said, it's possible that even at that low dose, though, you know, that amount of THC could be providing some pain relief, could be providing some relaxation. As you say, I mean, it's very difficult to get any kind of direct feedback from a veterinary patient. So all we really have to go on is, is how they're acting, how, you know, how they're moving around. Um, Because, you know, from the dog's perspective, there is no placebo effect here. Now, certainly as a human perceptual issue, we we may read things into it that aren't there and that, you know, that is a a placebo effect in and of itself. But, you know, if the dog is unquestionably doing things that it otherwise wasn't doing, the
0: only explanation for that is because they feel better. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And also, you know, kind of to relate that to the humans, and and we talk about this often on the show, where people are experiencing... Uh, or they're looking for relief from something, but they really don't want to experience any level of, uh, you know, THC, euphoria, or intoxication. And so we always tell people that, you know, take 2.5 milligrams four times a day, and you may never feel it, but it's still at the those, those clinical doses still... Causing muscle relaxation and causing anti-inflammation, it's just not a high enough dose that you're that you're getting anything in your head. And and I and I think that's that's exactly what you're describing for uh, the veterinary patients as well.
1: Yeah, you know that's that's very true. As uh, you know, when I speak to groups of pet owners or groups of veterinarians, I mean, I very frequently tell them that that it is just like with a person. It is absolutely possible to put an animal on THC and have them not be high. It's just a function of understanding how many milligrams you're giving relative to the body weight uh, and/or species of the of the particular animal that you're treating. Um, and and to go along with that, you know, therapeutic dosing. So so you know doses of say THC that have a positive effect medically speaking. Do not have to be psychoactive doses. There's plenty of space in the in the in the therapeutic dosing window that are well below whatever would cause psychoactivity in a human or an animal, and you can still get benefit from it. I mean, look at all these people that are out there that are that are functioning members of society that rely on cannabis, uh, you know, to get through their day um, because they have pain or anxiety or whatever it is that they may have. Um, you know, those people are not walking around high. Um, you know, it's just that, you you know, like with any medication, you have to understand what you're giving and what dosage
0: you're giving. I think it's important too, to point out that while, let's see, how do I want to go into this? So I think I'm going to start with the anecdote. So over the course of my life of using cannabis, I have been in the presence of other people who have had pets. And at some point, they got the 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 pet high, you know, by blowing smoke in their ear or whatever that you know ha- I've seen happen. And and at some point, the pet decided that it liked it. So that so that when I'm over at their house and and they light up the 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 let's let's say a dog, the dog hears the lighter. And so the dog comes in the room and is kind of begging for it. I always found that to be really extraordinary, both because I did not think it was fun or funny to dose an unsuspecting animal. But since it had already been done and I was there and the animal seemed to want more... I found that to be a rather interesting, uh, uh, data point. Uh, do you have any, uh, you know, uh, feedback from your, your patients and their owners about pets that have acquired, um, a desire for more of it?
1: You know, that's uh, honestly, that's not something that I've really come across. I mean, I, I, you know, I feel pretty strongly that, that, you know, that kind of, that kind of activity, like intentionally blowing smoke in your dog's face or something that, I mean, that's, that's not okay. Um, and in fact, that that borders on animal abuse. Um, you, you know, partially because, you know these animals are not equipped nor aware of what's coming from a psychoactivity standpoint. And also because, you know what I mean, inhaling smoke is not necessarily good for anybody. Um, and it's certainly not good for dogs and cats. And if you know, and if 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 cannabis as medicine is something that they benefit from and and one could speculate, you know what, if that individual dog seems to seek it out, maybe there's something that dog is getting from it, medically speaking, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe something hurts less, or maybe they just generally feel better. And if that's the case, then, then, you know, that's when it's time to investigate a more responsible use of medical cannabis rather than what I would, what I would describe as irresponsible use of recreational cannabis.
0: Yeah, right on. That makes sense to me. So, So, we talked a little bit about the potentiality for um, the use of both CBD and THC to decrease you know pain and joint pain, just general body aches of a of a older uh, domestic pet uh people have started writing online that they're using cbd to rebalance the endocannabinoid system so their pets um don't have allergies and and i've never run into this with an animal before so i don't know how i would know that my pet has an allergy what it's to and then to choose to treat it with cbd but um what do you what do you have uh in that category
1: you know uh of all of the things that I've seen animals benefit from cannabis for, I mean, allergies is not, it's not at the top of the list. Um, you know, you know, as, as we have mentioned, I mean, cannabis in its, in its many forms, it does have anti-inflammatory properties. It does have sort of overall immune system and body balancing properties by virtue of, of, uh, promoting homeostasis as we discussed before. Um, I have in fact on a couple of occasions seen, topical cannabis products used on animals um that seem to have helped a little bit with itching and allergies so i think you know there may be something there although like i say i mean you know you look at all of the various things that cannabis is used for you know in people as well and you know i mean treating allergies is you know is not super high on that list of things i think there are there are there are other options out there both natural medicine wise and if necessary pharmaceutically speaking that probably would work a little
0: better. One thing I've seen for sure is when folks will administer small amounts of THC to their uh, you know, domestic animal that uh, for, for pain or something, um, often they will get the munchies and you can just see them go to town on, on their food. And And people are often overjoyed because like, oh my gosh, the, the, the animal had had so much, it was in pain and they weren't getting a lot of movement and they didn't even want to go over to their food bowl. And now suddenly there's movement and they just totally cleaned out the bowl. And so they, they kind of help bring the pet back to health by, by, leaning on what I'm assuming is going to be the myrcene in the, in the THC preparation. Um, are, 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 have you seen that taking place in your practice? You know,
1: I'm not honestly convinced that cannabis is, is directly an appetite stimulant in animals. Like, you know, from, from like the munchie standpoint. But what I think we do see is because a lot of the animals that are receiving these medications, they're, you know, they're not eating or they're not eating well because they don't feel good. You know, they feel sick, whether they have an upset stomach or they're in pain or there's something else going on. I mean, you know, I think we all know from our own health that when you, you know, when you feel crappy, you know, going out and eating a bunch, is not necessarily always, you know, your, your, your first priority. Um, And I think what happens with these guys is oftentimes we see them eat better because they feel better. So they're not they're not in pain anymore. Maybe their stomach upset is is relieved, and therefore they're going to eat more. But you know, like I say, I'm not I'm not 100 convinced it's directly appetite
0: stimulating in the sense that like people get the munchies. Uh, see, this is another great quest, great place that we, we'd love to ask them. You know, <laughs> yeah, right? You'd really love to. Yeah, totally. So um, uh, I ran into something new recently. Uh, someone using a, uh, a myrcene dominant thc tincture with their pet after surgery so they they had a pet that had normally has a lot of energy and was going to be jumping around and they did not want to give it a traditional uh, i don't know pharmaceuticals to dope out the animal after the surgery but they were still concerned about the sutures getting uh, ripped open or, or or just give letting them have the time to get over the trauma of the surgery, and so what they did is they they they, they used this tincture and they intentionally got their dog a little high, but the dog seemed fine and relaxed and just kind of chilled out around them for the next few days and then they you know and then they stopped the the dosing and the the dog kind of perked back up and went on its merry way and you know outside of the the discussion that we've already had that you've got to be really darn careful with dosing and we're going to talk more about dosing after the break um yeah. what do you think about um you know the use of of uh, a THC tincture to kind of slow down or uh I don't know, but incapacitate an animal so that they can get through their more important uh, healing.
1: You know, it's it's a really interesting question because because well, like in my mind, my immediate sort of knee jerk response was going to be, you know what, that's a bad idea. But you know, when i when I look at the when I look at the kinds of pharmaceuticals that we typically use in veterinary medicine uh, for just that purpose, so so post surgical animals. Uh, to keep them calm, to keep them uh, from being too active after a surgery. I mean, effectively, that's kind of what we're doing, is we're intentionally sedating the dog or the cat or whatever, um, so they're not excessively active. So, you know, is giving, giving, say, like a pharmaceutical, like Trazodone, is that – is that demonstrably better than somebody giving an appropriate dose of, of, a, of a, you know, a cannabis preparation with T.H.E. and Myrcine? I mean, honestly, I don't actually know the answer to that question. That's one of those things that uh, down the road, I think research would be really fascinating to start to look at like, um, um, at like physiologic parameters like, you know, heart rate and respiration rate and, and pain, you know, pain response. It'd be really fascinating to see if if cannabis, you know, can be appropriately used in that sense. Um, uh, You know, clearly uh, it is going to be extremely difficult, if not impossible, for a pet owner to get any kind of guidance in that regards from a veterinarian. Um, So, you know, that, as you say, that just, it rolls us back around to that discussion of, of dosing. And I think that that's that's particularly, uh, important with this particular scenario, because now, now we're talking about really getting up close to the line, um,
0: between a therapeutic dose and what, and what would be considered a toxic dose. Yeah. So, uh, so let's pick up this dosing conversation after the first break. Um, you are listening to shaping fire and my guest today is veterinarian, Dr. Gary Richter. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes and custom terpene blends. True terpenes, isolated terpenes, and terpene blends are tested to the most demanding worldwide safety and stability standards. Terpenes from True terpenes are third-party tested, non-GMO, and food grade. They're triple distilled, making them the purest terpenes available in the world. With over 1,000 terpene isolates, strain profiles, and terp flavors, you can be sure that True Terpenes will have the perfect aromatics for your manufacturing goals. True Terpenes also offers custom blending, so that you can match your company's marquee strains across all your product categories. While you can certainly simply just order terpenes and go right to manufacturing, True Terpenes also offers a wealth of manufacturing insight, best practices, and a willingness to help you break new ground with your product formulations. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, too, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for Terps before, you know how rare that is. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the Terps that you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or beverage. True Terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard Terps. Choose True Terpenes for a top-shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter.
2: Cannabis is fun medicine, and we love to celebrate it. Cannabis connects people and creates opportunities for new friendships. At The Toke Shop, we create custom cannabis-themed jewelry, money clips, rolling trays, and home furnishings that you love. And they also make great gifts, too. I'm Ashley Villafranca, owner of The Toke Shop. I came to cannabis as a patient seeking an alternative to the pharmaceuticals being pushed at me for chronic pain and fibromyalgia. I realized that not only was cannabis a huge help in controlling my symptoms, but I found cannabis to be wonderfully social too. Cannabis makes friends. So I took my love of jewelry design and blended it with my newfound passion for cannabis and began handcrafting bracelets, earrings, and friendship necklaces and then expanded to money clips, rolling trays, and other home furnishings, all made in sterling silver, 14-karat gold, and aluminum, so there's something for everyone's budget. I consider it all to be new-age cannabis fashion and cannabis couture. I invite you to stop by my website at thetokeshop.co. At thetokeshop.co, you'll find a wide array of attractive and fun cannabis items starting at only 10 bucks. and if you're fancy, there are very fine luxury pieces as well. And I'm always happy to do custom orders with your name or a particular theme. Come check out my array of items hand stamped with terpenes, cannabinoids, and other cannabis themes. That's thetokeshop.co. Thanks.
0: Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose. And our guest this week is veterinarian, Dr. Gary Richter. So before the break, we were talking about the importance of making sure you get the dosing right. And, you know, this is true of humans as well because you can very easily move somebody from uh, a dose that's going to help them to an over-medicated dose that's going to have them, you know, potentially upset for an hour or so. And we never want to do that with animals because they don't know what's going on to them and they trust us to take care of them uh, the best way that we can. Um, But it's hard because most people don't know how to even dose humans properly. Um, And so when they're trying to apply the same... You know, lack of experience to their pet, things can um, get into trouble real fast. So, Gary, during the first set, you were talking about how uh, uh, dogs have gotten more CB one receptors, and so they they have a faster uptake of cannabinoids and uh, i often explain that to people it's like the difference between taking an edible versus um, hitting a joint when you inhale a joint it goes to your lungs and it goes immediately in your bloodstream and it hits you all at once and that's why you feel stoned faster whereas when you take an edible or a capsule it takes a longer time to be processed through your body and it comes on a little more slowly well with what you educated us about earlier about the cb1 receptors and dogs that tells me that we've got to be even more careful than I thought we needed to be. So when you're talking to people about figuring out dosing, what do you tell them when, they, when they're trying to weigh, like, how do I know how many CB receptors my pet has got versus dog weight? You know, these are, these are unknowns at this point. So how do you, how do you help bring somebody through it?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the, the I think the there, there's a couple of uh, a couple of hard and fast rules in this regards, and and you know, if I were say speaking with a group of pet owners or 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 educating veterinarians on on you know ways that they can think about using cannabis in their practice, uh, you know, the two things that I think are important to remember as it pertains to dosing um, is number one, um, you know, it, it's it, it all it's all about body weight. Uh, it's all about the body weight of the animal. Um, so, you know, it's interesting when you look at, uh, when you look at dosing for humans very commonly in the literature, you'll see, you know, this drug X number of milligrams per adult human male or human female. Um, but there's so much variability in sizes of adult dogs. I mean, you can have a, a, a one pound Chihuahua or a 200 pound Great Dane. Um, so, so knowing how much the patient weighs is, is gotta be step one. And step two, um, as, as we often say, even when it comes to human medicine, it is very much a start low and go slow kind of approach. So, you know, we start them at, we start them at a dose that, that we know is going to be safe and is very unlikely to cause any sorts of side effects. And then slowly over time, we increase that dose until we get to, until we either get to a therapeutic effect that we're looking for, or we've gone so high that we're now seeing side effects that we don't like, in which case we may need to think about a different medication.
0: And that's why it's important to go slow because that you know, if you're going to go step, 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 and like, let's say that it's the fourth step where you're starting to see adverse reaction. You don't want to be taking big steps so that there's a big adverse reaction. You want it to be very, very subtle so that you can read your uh, animal's body language and then realize, okay, this is this is our threshold point here. And so, uh, again, it's, it's important. What would you call a... a a a small step. Are you talking about increases of like a half a milligram?
1: Well, again, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say on a per milligram basis because it depends on the size of the animal. So, you know, I might look a little bit more from a percentage increase Mm. uh, rather than per milligram. Um, You know, so probably, you know, a a safe thing to start with would maybe like, like a 20% increase on a weekly basis um and you know what people need to kind of look out for is is if if as they're ramping that dose up if they give if they give an increased dose and and the pet looks you know they look a little glassy eyed they look a little out of it they're sort of staring off into space then probably that means we need to back off the dose um uh, somewhat
0: so Gary, one of the things you know, that, that everybody wants to know is the exact dosage that they need to start with. And this is difficult, right? Because no, nobody wants to talk about it. And, and when I, when I, when I read places, they don't want to go to that level of detail. So, um, You've already spoken real clearly that there are variations between a smaller uh, pet and a larger pet, um, but but there's got to be some algorithm where we can get people to start because they're going to do it anyway. So so what do you recommend?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean that that is true, and that is that is invariably one of the questions that almost all people who are looking at cannabis for animals have, um, and quite rightly so. Uh, So, you know, to start with, as it pertains to dosing, to start with CBD, um, and and I'll start with that because we actually do have some some research information here. The study that I was mentioning a little bit earlier that came out of Cornell looking at dogs with arthritis, as well as another study that came out of Colorado State University looking at dogs with epilepsy, so treating seizures with CBD, both of those studies looked at dosages approximately of two milligrams of CBD per kilogram of body weight twice daily. So, you know, as a doctor, um, all of our, we sort of think in in terms of milligrams per kilogram when it comes to dosing. But what that really translates to in in plain English is about a milligram of CBD per pound of body weight. So, for example, if you have a 10-pound dog, you're talking about give or take about 10 milligrams of CBD twice a day. Now, mind you, if you're if you're familiar at all with with with, uh, with CBD dosing, that dose may strike you as high. Um, and 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 in truth, when I saw these studies initially, I kind of find that found that dose seemingly a little on the high side as well. I have seen a lot of animals do very well on much lower dosages of CBD. So it may be that 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 even significantly lower dosages um, can be beneficial, but but as you know, you know the the, the margin of safety for CBD is like a mile wide. Yeah. So um, so you don't you, you don't have a lot of concern there from the standpoint of overdose toxicity that sort of thing. Now clearly that's not the case when it comes to THC. So um, let me preface this by saying that the dosing that I'm about to discuss is is. Is unfortunately not based on any scientific research at this point. It's really a combination of extrapolation from human research, uh, what I have seen work well in pets, reports that I've gotten from from other veterinarians, um, from other medical professionals, etc. Um, but I think it's a I think it's a reasonably good guideline. And and the guideline from the standpoint of starting a THC dose for a dog or a cat is going to be approximately milligrams per kilogram twice a day. So that's 0.05 milligrams per kilogram of body weight twice a day. So again, in plain English, what that, um, what that's going to translate to is about a quarter of a milligram per 10 pounds of body weight. So if you have, for example, a 40 pound dog, uh, you might think about starting with a milligram of THC twice a day. Um, and and as we discussed, you know, you can sort of slowly ramp up from there, um, but that should be a reasonably safe
0: place to start. So Gary, of course, that brings us to how do we actually get the dose into the animal? Um, you know, often I will recommend to pet owners to to use an alcohol-based tincture because that goes through the skin so easily, and following the, uh, the 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 analytics on the label to dose them the proper amount on the skin, under the fur, on the back of the neck. And, and and I've heard some people do that same technique, but they'll do it with the ear because it's got you know very soft membranes as well. But in your role, you are constantly teaching people how to uh, give their pets, you know, you know, capsules or liquids or whatever they normally need to take. So how do how do you advise? people to actually get the, get the, the cannabinoids into the animal, which, which who won't necessarily recognize it as food.
1: Sure. So, um, you know, I am, a, I'm a big proponent of, um, of cannabis infused oils. Um, and I like them for a couple of reasons. Um, The first reason is, is whenever you're administering a liquid, you have a lot of leeway as far as as far as dosing goes. So, you know, as we were discussing earlier, you know, if if we're going to go with these sort of start low and go slow theory um, and we're going to say, okay, well, you know, increase by, say, 20 percent each week. If you're going to do that with a liquid, it's quite easy. If you're going to do it with some something that looks like a food item, like a dog biscuit or something, you know, 20% Twenty percent can be tricky. Um, you know, it's hard to break those things up into, you know, into sort of even portions. Uh, and I also do like to give the oils um, directly orally, uh, with the intent that hopefully we're going to get a certain amount of transmucosal absorption, so absorption into the bloodstream directly through the mouth. Um, even prior to that medication being swallowed and ultimately digested and absorbed through the gastrointestinal tract. So, you know, I think, I think oral administration is, is, is certainly my preferred method. Um, just to address what you were speaking about before, um, uh, what I would call transdermal, so putting it on the skin uh, with the intent of being systemically absorbed. Um, we don't have an enormous amount of information about the efficacy of that, um, but I can tell you that the, the aforementioned study from Colorado State University looking at epileptic dogs also looked at rates of absorption of various, um, uh, methods of administration of CBD, and they found that the transdermal absorption was the most poorly absorbed preparation. Oh, interesting. Um, so, so at least preliminarily, um, it may be that that you know that cannabis is not is not super well absorbed in that way. But if nothing else, um, you know one thing that I can say, really just from my experience um, with other transdermal medications that are used in veterinary medicine, is at best absorption is is unpredictable from one individual to the next. So it's a little bit hard to tell how much is actually getting in the patient.
0: Yeah, fair enough. So if you are recommending oral. And, and if I understand your vocabulary correctly, you don't really want it, you know, clearly we don't want to do like a, a preset dosed biscuit, dog biscuit or something or animal, whatever. Uh, but, but we do want to use an oil. But you're also saying don't take a pre-measured amount of that oil and apply it to the dog biscuit you regularly give them. I think you're saying just put the oil in their mouth. Is that what you're saying?
1: I mean, I think in a perfect world, yes, that's what I'm saying. Now, you know, I mean, that's all well and good. But I mean, if if an animal is just bottom line, not amenable to being medicated that way, then by all means, feed it to them. Put it on food. Put it on a treat. It's not, you know, it's, you know, these things are not, it's not black or white. Um, You know, I think if we're looking for the most efficient means of absorption uh, directly orally is probably a good way to go. Um, and, you know, and I think that that, um, you know, I think that that speaks a little bit to the conversation of, of if you get the right preparation for the individual, dosing becomes really easy um, because let's say that if I'm going to dose some given dog um, and based on the concentration of the medicine that I have, the dose is two or three drops of oil I can put those drops of oil on my finger and just lift up a lip, rub it on his gums and I'm done. Uh, I see. So, right. you know, but you know, if, if you get a operation and you have to give like, 3 teaspoons of oil then yeah that's going to be a
0: problem <laughs> right on and it's always important i think when when ju- just like interacting with human patients when you have an animal patient they have got a life experience mm. too and and we want to make sure that we create a a healthy experience for them so they don't want to resist uh, being handled and medicated. And, and who knows, you might have an experience like we talked about earlier where the animal realizes that after I get rubbed with this oil on my gums, my pain decreases. They may end up being like all in, like I'm in favor of this.
1: (laughs) You know, that, that, that may in fact be true. The, the, the one part where where it, it may not work out as well as we want it to is, is, is while dogs and cats are certainly very attuned to a cause and effect relationship, um, it may be that the effect is far enough down the road from the cause that they don't connect the two. You know, if they don't feel better for like a half hour, they may not connect that to when we put it in their
0: mouth. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> so let's, let's take this to the far end of the scale, right? Because at the far end of the scale, we've got animals with cancer. And uh, for, th- for folks who do not understand what a, 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 a typical human cancer protocol is, it's taking 60 grams or, or, or technically milliliters of of, of this cannabis oil, commonly known as Rick Simpson oil or ethanol hash oil. But essentially, it's, a, it's an ethanol extraction of the oil from the plant, uh, very concentrated. And, uh, and a, a human will take 60 um, milliliters of this over 90 days. And that is an extraordinary amount of cannabinoids. And just about all the patients find that they sleep through the majority of the time because it's so uh, it makes you so lethargic. You know, there are certainly people who will be taking these high dosage and and it actually is a buoy to them. They they're actually feeling better and and more lighthearted and they don't sleep. But that's that's really uncommon. <laughs> Normally, people are lethargic and and they sleep most of the time. But the problem is, is that when people are getting up, they, when they're titrating up and and going to a higher, higher dose every third or fourth day, sometimes you get nausea from the higher dose or, um, or like any kind of dysphoria that people will sometimes have when they take uh, too much THC. And so people will say okay i know that i that that humans are taking a thc preparation for cancer and my dog has got a tumor or, or, or some other form of cancer and so i want to do that for my dog too because they have an endocannabinoid system and so the problem though is that when you're working with a patient, the patient is giving you very clear feedback about how they're feeling, and we are dealing with high dosage, so that feedback is incredibly important. When we're doing this with um, our our you know house pet, we are way closer to cannabinoid toxicity levels by trying to do a high enough dose that is actually. Acting as a um, as a cancer cure because this is way more of a dose than just helping them with joint pain But the but the animal can't give us really quality feedback to know if they are getting paranoid or getting upset or getting nauseous or any of these things and it and it makes for a very difficult situation and yet I'm regularly hearing from people who are buying syringes of ethanol hash oil, putting it in capsules and giving it to their animal to try to help with their tumors. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that there are so many ways for this to go wrong. What has been your experience?
1: Well, that is that is an accurate statement. There are so many ways for this to go badly. Um, You know, first of all, um, if anybody, you know, if, if anybody has ever had the experience of of eating too many edibles. You know, you can start to get an idea of, of, of what kind of effects that we're talking about. I mean, you know, overindulging on edibles is not a good time for anybody. Um, and if you've ever seen a person on one of these cannabis protocols for cancer, I will tell you that it, it is brutal. Yeah, It is not fun um, for these people. Um, but you know what, I mean, if it's something that as a human, if that's what you've signed up for, then you've made that decision and you understand why you feel the way that you do and that's all great. Um, that said, we cannot do that. Um, we can't do that with animals. Um, and you know, I mean, you know, there's a couple of things to say, I guess, in that regard. first of all, um, you know, just, just from an, from an oncology perspective. So from a cancer treatment perspective, Um, you know, there's a little bit of a different philosophy when it comes to, um, when it comes to animals versus people. So for example, if a person has cancer and, and they go to their oncologist, essentially their oncologist's mission is to keep their patient alive no matter what. Um, and sometimes that means damn near poisoning them to death in the process, um, when it comes to veterinary patients, when it comes to animals, nobody wants to put an animal through that kind of chemotherapy. And as such, the goals of of um, of oncology when it comes to animals is not to preserve life at all costs. It is to preserve quality of life. So I think that's the first thing that we have to we have to really sort of pay very close attention to. Is is you know what I mean? It's cancer, and and just like with people, you know, a lot of pets unfortunately are going to ultimately succumb to cancer. Um, and the best thing that we can do for these animals is to give them good quality of life for as long as we possibly can. So having them uncomfortably stoned out of their minds for the last weeks or months of their life is 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 really is really not a good way to go. Um, to speak to the specific preparations. Uh, I know there's a lot of people out there that are buying Rick Simpson oil and other sorts of super concentrated cannabis oils. Um, I would highly, highly advise against giving any of those products to animals. Um, And the reason why I say that is because those products are so concentrated that it is functionally impossible to accurately dose. So we talked a little bit earlier about dosing, you know, on a on a milligram per kilogram of body weight basis or a milligram per pound of body weight basis. You know, when you're talking about something like Rick Simpson oil that is so concentrated that a grain of rice, is about 10, 20, 50 milligrams of of THC, and let's say your dog's dose is one milligram of THC there's no way you're gonna be able to sort of accurately dose that. Um and and you know, again, from a from a doctor's perspective, a grain of rice is not a dose. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you know, my you know, my immediate thought is always like, what kind of rice? Is it long grain? Is it short grain? Is it basmati rice? I mean you can't you can't you can't dose medicine in this way. I mean if you're gonna call if you're gonna call cannabis powerful medicine, which it is, then we need to treat it in the, in the same way that we would any other, you know, any other powerful, uh, and effective medicine. So to, to kind of just sort of bring this in for a landing, I guess, um, as it pertains to dosing cannabis for cancer, um, oftentimes the goal, um, with these animals is to ramp them up to the highest dose that we can get them on and have them still feel okay and feel functional. Um, you know, remember that just like with people, dogs will develop a tolerance to the psychoactivity of THC over time. So over time you can get them on much, much higher doses of THC than you will be able to give them on day one. And I will tell you that I have seen dogs with, uh, dogs with cancer on doses of THC that if I were to take it, I would be under the covers for three days. (laughs) So um, you know, they can develop a tolerance just like people can. But you got to do it slowly, and you really just don't want to push it any further than they can handle.
0: Right on. Thank you, Gary. This, is, this has been a great set. I'm really glad to be able to get this level of specificity on dosing all together and in one place. So it's time for us to take our second short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is veterinarian Dr. Gary Richter. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast? When I attend conventions or speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world, Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life. Reggie Gaudino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome, and Jeff Lohenfels on the Soil Food Web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, and even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash or click on the link in this week's newsletter. As a listener of Shaping Fire, you already understand the importance of living soil when growing cannabis. When you have active microbe communities in your substrate, you go way beyond simply fertilizing with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Having active microorganisms in your substrate supports vigorous plant growth throughout the plant's root zone, making for higher yields and thriving flowers. Mammoth pea is the first organically derived microbial inoculant that focuses on your plant's nutrient cycling processes to release soil phosphorus and other micronutrients from their bound forms, making them more available to the plant. Increased levels of phosphorus will also keep internodes shorter and focus your plant's energy on bud production. Not only that, but the microbes act as a defense shield for the plant's rhizosphere by outcompeting potentially harmful pathogenic microbes. Pretty cool, right? Mammoth pea not only unlocks the nutrients in your soil, but it also helps protect your plant from disease. Mammoth peas' beneficial bacteria act like microbioreactors, continually producing enzymes that release nutrients. Mammoth pea was developed at a U.S. university and has been extensively tested by Colorado growers and independent laboratories. Mammoth pea is proven to increase growth and enhance blooming. One of the great things about supplementing with microorganisms is that they won't compete with whatever fertilizer program you're already running. Simply dose on top of your fertilizer schedule for increased benefits. To learn more and to find out where you can buy Mammoth P near you, check out their website at www.mammothmicrobes.com. Partner with microorganisms to create beautiful, thriving cannabis. Mammoth P. Welcome back. You're listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is veterinarian, Dr. Gary Richter. So, so far in the show, we have talked a lot about um, your typical domestic pets, your dogs and your cats. But, um, you know, I live rurally on an island, and a lot of you have got livestock and other types of animals, too. So before we wrap up today, I think it makes sense to talk with some of those. So, so Gary, let's start with really small non-dog and cat animals. Uh, clearly, because they don't have endocannabinoid systems, we take lizards and snakes and things like that out because they're, they're not mammals. But, but let's talk about, for example, bunnies. Bunnies are very common they, and they, they become pets very quickly and become house, house rabbits. Uh, and I'm familiar with people using um, cannabis with their bunnies as they get older and you know they want to help them bring back their hop a little bit. So, so what do you think about, um, about small mammals and the difficulty with dosing them at such a low amount? Um, before we get to that, let, let me just, let me just make the point that, um,
1: reptiles do have endocannabinoid systems as far as we know.
0: Oh, I did not Uh, know that, huh.
1: And in fact, um, you know, the endocannabinoid system is fascinating in the sense that, that, you know, if you look at the, the types of animals that have an endocannabinoid system, Evolutionarily speaking, you're going back millions and millions of years. I mean, there are um, there are marine invertebrates that have an endocannabinoid system. Wow. So um, so so I mean, most complex animals that you can think of have some form of an endocannabinoid system. Of course, you know, that doesn't mean that it works exactly the same way as it as as it would in a mammal. Um, but, but, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, it is, it it is, it is pretty well ingrained, um, in the animal kingdom. Um, now to get to your question about, about small furry things like bunnies and whatnot, um, the reality is, is we don't really know pretty much anything as it pertains to, as it pertains to dosing, um, on these sorts of things. Um, you know, I can tell you that, that, you know, sort of the digestive tract and the metabolism, um, you know, of a rabbit or some other, you know, sort of small furry animal like that, uh, is pretty drastically different from that of a dog or a cat. So, um, it, it's probably not applicable to just sort of downsize the dosing accordingly per body weight. Um, you know, as a rule, Um, you know, uh, a lot of these animals are significantly more sensitive to pharmaceuticals than, um, than, um, than say would be a dog or a cat on a, on a per pound basis. So odds are the dosing is actually going to be lower, um, uh, than people might think. Um, you know, I think from a safety perspective, Um, you know, if, if somebody had like an arthritic bunny or a bunny that had like back issues or something, they could try a little CBD, um, I think quite safely, um, and see if that helps. I'm not aware of any medical issues that, uh, that have come up as far as that goes. Um, with regards to something like THC, like I say, I mean, there's just, there's just no information out there to even have a, even have a clue, um, about where to start from a dosing perspective
0: so let 's go the other direction. so I live on an island that is very equestrian heavy, and um, there are there are horses everywhere, and people see THC and CBD being used in other animals and so they 're they 're looking to deploy THC for you know, for injury, for everything we pretty much discussed talking about using it for for dogs and cats earlier. They're, they're starting to cross apply to, to horses and people are starting to experiment with high doses of CBD to, to keep uh, horses calm. Um, but these are huge animals uh, with a pretty significant different. Uh, kind of system right down to how they how they process their nutrition what are your thoughts on on using THC and CBD and the, and the other novel cannabinoids on these these larger livestock animals
1: yeah that's a that's a really great question and again I mean there's there are there are people that are starting to look um, at those issues I mean I can tell you just you know from a from a pharmacology standpoint horses on a per pound basis usually take Far far less medication to be effective than say would a dog or a cat. Mm. Um, so the dosing is 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 very likely to be a lot lower than people would think that it would be. Um, you know I do know that there's some people out there that are starting to look at um, the use of CBD in horses. Um, again we don't really have any any published or even very much anecdotal data out there as far as, um, you know, specific doses go, um, you know, certainly one thing that I would urge extreme caution with, uh, as it pertains to THC in an animal like a horse, um, is, is, you know, potentially causing even mild THC toxicity in a horse. I could, I could foresee as being a very, very concerning thing, um, you know, from the standpoint of, of, you know, horses, as you probably are aware, are are, are fairly fragile creatures. Um, and you know, if a horse would, you know, got a little too much THC and lost their footing and fell, I mean, that literally could be a life-ending event um, for for a horse. So, um, you know, that's something I would certainly urge extreme caution. And if people, you know, if there's horse people out there. Um, you know, they may actually have a little bit more information than I do because, because that's not really so much the world that I live in. Um, but, but you know, I would, I would definitely urge, uh, urge extreme caution and, and taking things very, very slowly
0: and not only could it potentially put the, the, the horse or other livestock at, at risk, but also, I mean, we all know how dangerous a horse can be when it is spooked or ornery, and yep. if it's having this experience that it's never had before and it's feeling unsafe, wow, it could it could hurt the people around it, and it could hurt itself against, uh, against things that are nearby.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I'm not, i'm not I'm not going to say that it's it's something that should never be done because again, it's a little out of my area of expertise, but I mean it's something that that should be done under veterinary guidance and very very carefully
0: right on I think that's a good point for us to say you know we're we're pulling so much of our experience from from anecdotes and from personal experience of people doing this on the animals that tend to be most commonly in our lives, right? Dogs and cats. And and as we as we work our way out to smaller animals like rabbits and larger animals like like horses and cattle, the the number of data points that we have even anecdotally get less and less and less. And so if you're working with animals at either end of the scale, don't think that you can just take the, the dog or cat dosing uh, algorithm and just apply it to these other animals.
1: Right. Yeah, you're
0: absolutely right. Yeah. So uh, let's, have a, let's have a little discussion about topicals for these animals because um, uh, topicals are nice because it, they generally keep the dosing pretty low. And uh, certainly CBD um, uh, topicals for, for you know, psoriasis and dermatitis and these, these other types of skin issues certainly are great for animals. Um, my question, which is pretty basic, is how do you use a topical with an animal with fur?
1: Well, it's tricky. Um, uh, you know, it's tricky for two reasons. The fur is certainly one of them. And, you know, if there was an area of skin that, that you know, seemed like it really warrants a topical, then it may be that that area needs to be shaved. Um, because otherwise, I mean, I think, you know, I think a topical would be, uh, would be difficult. Um, I have seen some products out there that are essentially just alcohol extracts that are, that are packaged as a spray. So it may be that, you know, you might be able to, you know, get good skin contact uh, with a spray uh, even without shaving, um, you know, and there are certainly endocannabinoid receptors in the skin and the hair follicles. So, I mean, I think there's absolutely medical application there. The flip side of it, um, the other thing that we have to be concerned about is that, you know what, anything that you put on an animal's skin is likely to get licked off. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, and that's a real issue, um, particularly if you're talking about a topical product that has THC in it, um, because again, now we have to think about well, how many milligrams of THC is this dog ingesting? Because they're licking this stuff off, and is that a concern from a from a toxicity standpoint? So, it may be that if people are using topicals, um, particularly ones that have THC in them, they're going to have to put like a you know like a uh, what we call an e collar, like the lampshade, if you will. Um, something on them to prevent them from turning around and licking that stuff
0: off. So Gary, before we move on to talking a little bit about uh, nu- uh, pet nutrition, I do want to point out that that there's not um, any quality standards that are enforced for for pet medications. And there are a lot of folks that are in the... You know in the green rush that are, are bringing um, cannabinoid isolate products to the market and as we've learned with humans it's very important to use a whole plant preparation because these individual molecules say for example CBD which is uh, short for cannabidiol um, a lot of people put out products that are just that individual molecule Uh, in some kind of vehicle, and and they suggest that it might work just like all the studies say. And yet, the vast majority of the studies are all focused on whole plant preparations, meaning you do a whole plant extraction, and you not only have the cannabidiol there, but you also have the other novel cannabinoids, the the, the canaflavin, and all the other um, parts of the cannabis plant that that are found in in the trichome oil there also. And they work together to, to do what's called the entourage effect. They work together as a, as a complex lock that unlocks the endocannabinoid system. Well, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are bringing products to the market that are just these individual molecule isolates. And so my question for you is, um, do you find that whole plant preparations are preferred for animals just like they are for humans?
1: Uh, You know, that's a it's a really good question. And, and, you know, that is certainly um, that is certainly something that um, certainly something that comes up a lot, um, because, as you say, I mean, there's a lot of people out there that are looking to make money um, in the cannabis industry. And, and, you know, certainly CBD isolates are are certainly one of the things uh, that are out there. You know, I um, in my office, I practice what I would describe as integrative medicine. Um, meaning that I, I offer both conventional Western care, but also holistic and natural medicine. And, and we use a lot of herbal preparations in this office, both Western herbs, Chinese herbs, what have you. Um, and, and as such, I am a very big fan of, uh, of the entourage effect and of whole plant extracts. Uh, in my experience, I find that those products tend to work better, um, usually than, um, than isolated compounds. Um. And I think that this kind of plays out a little bit if you look at, uh, for example, if you look at reports from people who are uh, who are taking uh, medications like Marinol, which is synthetic THC. so that's basically just pure THC isolate that was uh, that was manufactured synthetically, molecularly speaking, it's the same THC that you would find in cannabis. It's just that there's nothing else there. Um, and very frequently, those people will report that whole plant cannabis tends to work better for them than just the THC isolate. So, I mean, I think, that, I think that it bears out that these isolate products, you know, speaking in generalities, uh, do not work as well as a really good quality full spectrum extract.
0: Very good. So one thing that's interesting about folks everybody and how they acquire endocannabinoid deficiency, we generally suggest that um, uh, unless you're predisposed to it, people generally get endocannabinoid deficient from, uh, from stress and anxiety and poor sleep and poor nutrition and environmental toxins and things that generally run the body down to a point that um, it's not making its own endogenous cannabinoids effectively anymore. And then we go and supplement it with phytocannabinoids from the plant. Um, but I know that you are an expert um, also on, on pet nutrition, and I know we're talking about a lot of different animals today, right? But but I think that one of the key things is that if people put the care into the proper nutrition of their animals, that even if something uh, goes wrong, their, their body's more likely to bring their endocannabinoid system back into balance and, and and thus the other systems back into homeostasis all on its own. So outside of the use of, of, you know, supplementing with cannabinoids, what's a perspective that you would offer to people who care for their animals just so their nutrition is high enough that endocannabinoid deficiency is less likely?
1: Sure. So um, just to speak to endocannabinoid deficiency specifically, I mean, that is a that is a very, very difficult, if not impossible, thing to really prove in any given individual. Um, so it's a it's a very difficult thing to uh, it's a very difficult thing to quantify. That said, um, you know, you can't have good health without nutrition. You know, without without appropriate nutrition, um, and you know, I mean, no matter. No matter what kind of supplements, no matter what form of cannabis a patient may be taking, if they're not eating right, then they're probably not going to be healthy. And that, you know, I mean, that's that's always the first conversation I have with anybody that brings their pet into my office is 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 what what ideal nutrition looks like for their pet, um, because that's
0: got to be the foundation to everything. And so, so what do you, is there a general guidance? Like what, what I'm kind of like poking at is, um, like, do you recommend that, that people, uh, give their animals, uh, like whole foods that they, that they, you know, go to the extent to, to make them meals Are, yeah. is, 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 uh, an animal chow sufficient. I don't actually have an opinion on this. I'm just curious along with probably a lot of the listeners.
1: Gotcha. So, so I am very much a proponent of fresh whole food diets. So, um, you know, uh, the bottom line is, is that no animal or no person evolved eating highly processed foods. Uh, you know, so, you know, our bodies are not particularly ideally equipped to, to eat things out of a can or out of a bag. Um, so, so, you know, my preference is always to have my patients eating, eating fresh whole food diets. Now, whether those diets are um, raw food versus cooked food that, that they've purchased, um, uh, from a company that makes it, or if they're making food at home, uh, using an appropriately balanced recipe, you know, any of those things, any of those things are fine. Um, but, but, you know, as is the case with all of us, the fresher and the more whole foods they're eating, the better off they're going to be.
0: Right on. So, you know, mostly we've been talking about using cannabinoids today as, um, as a solution. Something's wrong. Uh, but what do you think about using cannabinoids as a preventative? Like your, your animal already is healthy. And yet um, we know that THC prevents cancer long term. And we know that supplementing uh, the endocannabinoid system with cannabidiol is generally good for health. What do you think about uh, giving uh, supplementation with cannabinoids, even if the patient is not presenting a problem?
1: You know what? I mean, I think what we're really talking about here is microdosing, Um, and, um, and the truth of the matter is, is I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that anybody really knows, um, in the sense of, you know, as we've discussed, I mean, we have so little research as far as, as far as use of cannabis to treat known disease. Um, you know, using cannabis as a preventative is, you know, I mean, I think it's, I think it's an intriguing question, but I have... I just have nothing to offer by way of, is that a good thing or a bad thing?
0: Well, that fair enough. Fair enough on that. Well, Dr. Gary Richter, thank you so much for sharing some of your valuable time with us. Uh, You know, this was, this is a different kind of show for me because I, uh, with a lot of these shows um, since I, I I talk and teach much of this medicine for humans, I kind of know the answers in advance, but I was surprised time and time again chatting with you. So uh, thank you for sharing your very uh, unique and hard earned knowledge and and, uh, and, and good luck on your pursuits with, with uh, the laws changing so that you can actually start discussing this with other veterinarians. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure to be here. If you'd like to uh, follow up with Dr. Gary Richter or if you'd like to bring uh, your pet to his office, uh, I've got two websites to share with you. Uh, if you live in the San Francisco, Oakland area and you actually want to visit his office, you can find out more about the office at holisticvet.com care.com. Now, if you want to access, uh, Dr. Gary Richter's brain, but you don't necessarily live in California, you can also go to his website where he provides, uh, general, uh, pet information on a, on a, on a range of issues where you can read that and then, and then apply it wherever you live. And that's at Dr. GaryRichter.com And Richter is spelled R-I-C-H-T-E-R. So it's drgaryrichter.com. And that's, you can find uh, general information about your pet uh, that is not going to involve you having to go into the office. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolose.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango
2: Lose.